But for now, grab your Bibles and let's go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. I was participating and singing this morning and and thinking through the the language of the songs that we were singing. And I, I hadn't really thought this through that much until we actually sang the songs and like, you know, Ebby and Jerry, whoever picked out the songs, it, it's not hard to find songs that relate to Psalm 103. Uh, in fact, we're going to sing one after this that actually is called or subtitled Psalm 103. Um, and the, the language of this psalm just fills many of our songs, and you'll hear and see that today. But before we get into the psalm, let me, let me just make an observation and then tell you a little story. Um, If you ever have a time in your life when chaos just erupts, things go haywire, and it feels out of control, and maybe a little scary, there are important things to do and know. And if you jump to kind of like the super high-level questions of what do I need to know in this chaotic, tense situation, there's maybe two questions that would be helpful to have answered in a timely fashion. The first one would be, who, who's in charge here? Who's in charge? Like, this is chaos, it's madness. This is kind of describing our Wednesday night doxa events. Like, who's in charge here? Who's in charge? But then the other question related to that one is, is that person who is in charge qualified to be in charge? In other words, like, they may be in charge, but are, are they wise? Are, do they know what they're doing? Are, are they good? Like, are they in it for us? Are they thinking of our best interests as well? Because if they're just in charge, like that doesn't necessarily mean things are good. So those two questions, who's in charge and are, are, they, are they good? Those are important questions when you have a chaotic situation. So here's my story. The date was September 9th, 2017. The place was the airport tarmac, specifically in Calcutta, India. The setting was a half-full Airbus A319-100 being flown by Bhutan Air, flight 319 that originated in Paro, Bhutan, a little kingdom in the Himalayas. You probably have never heard of it, maybe. And it flew from Paro to Calcutta and then was supposed to go on to Bangkok, Thailand. In maybe the 10th row of this rather small airplane, I'm asleep in a chair with noise-canceling headphones on, thoroughly exhausted from a long week of hiking in the Himalayas and teaching for about five or six hours every night. And then, chaos erupts. Some of you have heard this story. I apologize, but it's a good one, so uh, hang with me on this one. Chaos erupts. All of a sudden, I'm awakened, and people are running up and down the aisles. I don't know at this point if we're in the air. I tend to fall asleep when we're on, you know, taxiing and taking off and then wake up 10 minutes later. So I don't know if the plane's airborne, or if it's on the ground, in the water. I have no idea where we're at. I've been asleep for a while, but people are running up and down the aisle. And I, I take, pull my headphones off, and I hear the words. I'm thankful that English is kind of a universal language in airplanes. I hear the words, evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. No joke. This is a true story. I can show you the website link from the, uh, the after scenario or whatever, the, the, the recap. Um, so I'm, I'm there. I'm in a, a row of maybe two or three chairs, can't remember, by myself, curled up against the window, and I'm chaos, just chaos. I mean, people are kind of screaming. They're running up and down. And I'm like, okay, I guess they probably wouldn't say evacuate if we were in the air. 
Um, I, I don't think. So I'm going to obey that command, um, and I'm going to get out. I'm going to guess that we're, we're in some place that jumping out is not going to increase my chances of death. Um, although they always, give you, they always give you instructions about the flotation devices, which is really like, seriously. And, but they never like say, and the parachute is, which would be helpful. That seems to be more important than a flotation device, in my opinion. Um, but anyway, they say evacuate. And so I get up and I go, um, I just go to what I spy as the nearest exit. I know you're supposed to look before the flight. Where's your nearest exit? And I don't. I just, um, I got up, started pushing old ladies out of the way and went for... <laughs> That part is not true. Went for the exit. <clears throat> I get to the front of the plane where they, the, the uh, flight attendants are usually kind of doing their thing, and there's a, a Bhutanese flight attendant who is, has a little intercom in, fr- in her face, and she is scared out of her mind. You can see it in her eyes. She is terrified, and she's yelling, evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. And so I turn to where the door is, and usually you have the jetway, maybe a stairs. There's no jetway. There's no stairs. Thankfully, there's not, like, miles of air uh, or water, there's just an uh, inflatable slide. And so I jump on the slide and hit the ground a little bit later, and I, I kind of ran, stumbled away from the airport, airplane, looking back, thinking, this thing is going to explode. You can actually see, this is a picture I took afterwards. I, I went out the front one. My buddy Dave, who I think was sitting in front of me, went out the back one. Um, that, I, we still can't really figure that part out. Um, but I get, in, in the end, um, I think maybe 20, 30 people of the 80 that were on the plane had some minor injuries. I had a really bad rug burn on my elbow. Um, it hurt for a while, um, but it, it was better than what could have happened. But that, that was probably one of the more chaotic situations I've ever been in. Ended up staying in Kolkata for like eight hours until they could find another plane to get us to Bangkok and then got home days afterwards. It was a it was a nightmare. But you can just imagine that, like screaming, people running, like, is this plane going to blow? Chaos. And so the two questions, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Well, that Bhutanese lady, she was, she was in charge, and she was telling us what to do. Is she good? Is she good? I, I think so. <laughs> uh, she wasn't telling us lies. She was helping us get to where we needed to be. In the end, there was a slight oil leak somewhere not critical in the plane that was dripping onto something hot, and another plane coming in saw the smoke, called it in, and the captain ordered an evacuation, which is kind of standard protocol from what I heard. The plane actually flew to Bangkok about eight hours later and is fine. So it's, it's not as dramatic as a story as it could have been, but it does illustrate that situation of chaos. Who's in charge? Are they good? The Psalms have a flow to them. There's a flow to the Psalms. If you read from 1 to 150, it traces different themes and brings together different ideas and sections. Psalms 92 through 100 have a similar theme if you scan through those Psalms. And that theme is that the Lord reigns. So the answer to question number one in all things is God. God is in charge He's on the throne. The psalmists have made it explicit in those psalms in particular, but throughout the psalms, keep going back to that theme, God is in charge. The question, though, is, is he good? Is he good? So let me read Psalm 103 to you. And later on, if, uh, if I finish in time, we'll read it corporately. But for now, just listen to the words of this psalm. 
Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who... Excuse me, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Father, this is a delightful psalm. It is a joyful psalm. So fill our hearts with joy as we consider it this morning. Amen. So, is he good? What does the psalm say? Yep, he is. Yes, I mean, absolutely, unequivocally, Unashamedly, unbelievably, yes, he is good to those who fear him. That's the answer that Psalm 103 gives to the the partner idea of the Lord reigns in 92 to 100. So there's the answer. I already spilled the beans on that one if you hadn't figured it out. But now let's just kind of start our examination of this psalm by learning about chiasms. Okay, uh, not a lot of excitement about that. Um, here's the definition of chiasm from uh, the introduction to biblical interpretation by Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard. The chiasm is a structural device in which the word order of a parallel line is the reverse of its predecessor. So if you weren't excited before, now you're just thrilled, right? You're like, ooh, this is getting good now. Um, some of you are like, what? what is going on? Where's Nate? Come on, Nate. Um, right? But here's, here's what it does. Like a chiasm starts a line of poetry, and then it will return to that line at the end of the section. 
But then it'll have a parallel line and have another line that parallels that. And then in the middle, there might be one or two lines that, that form the heart of this psalm. You can see it throughout the psalms if you learn to study it. If you really want to learn it, you've got to learn Hebrew. I don't know Hebrew very well, so I don't get it quite deeply. But here's an illustration of what it looks like. There's line A. Maybe it says, God is faithful. And then at the end of the psalm, line should have a little apostrophe there on the bottom, A prime. That one says maybe faithful is the Lord. So similar ideas on the top and bottom. And then maybe B is um, for he, uh, he remembers his covenant. And then B prime is he, he's faithful to his word. And then C says let us praise the Lord or something like that. So the, the poem would read, and you wouldn't notice this at first, but the poem would read, I forgot what I actually just made up there. God is, the Lord, God is faithful. What was the second part? No more. He remembers his covenant. C was praise. praise the Lord. And then it returns to the first two ideas in reverse order. So it kind of follows this triangle arrow shape thing. Uh, in fact, if you draw it a different way, like this, A, line A, line B, C comes out in the middle there, then B, that you can kind of draw the connection points and it forms an X, which in Greek is the letter chi, and hence the word chiasm. So I really should have cut this out, but I just was too excited about that. Well, there is this sort of structure to Psalm 103. I do this for a reason because I want you to see how Psalm 103, it's very easy to see A and A prime. A is verses 1 through 5 where David says, Bless the Lord. Bless Yahweh, um, the God of Israel. Bless the covenant God of Israel. And then at the end of the psalm, verses 19 through 22, he comes back to that idea and says a very similar thing to a little bit different audience. Bless the Lord or bless Yahweh. In the middle of that, you have B and B prime, 6 through 14. Here's all that Yahweh does. Here's what the Lord has done and what he continues to do. And then in contrast to that, similar, similar idea. The Lord is everlasting, but man quickly passes. And so the, the psalm is structured like that. If you really want to nerd out on Hebrew poetry, learn to think about chiasm and see it. It'll actually, when I first learned this, I was like, I don't think that's really helpful, and I, I don't think that way. But the more you kind of get familiar with it, the more you see it, and you kind of see how the psalmist works this. It's very different than our poetry. But you can kind of see the structure of it, and you probably heard that as I read it somehow. You're like, oh, okay, I can see him returning to that bless the Lord concept. So let's walk through this poem fairly briefly here and then come back and dwell on a few spots. David, in the first couple verses, calls himself to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord not all you his people, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. David is talking to himself at the outset of this psalm, which is maybe a bit odd. I don't often say, Josh, bless the Lord to myself. And if I started doing that, my family might make some phone calls. It just seems a little bit odd. We tend to get uncomfortable around people who talk excessively, especially, to themselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great pastor in England, maybe a hundred years ago or so, um, said this, Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Now, that's, that's, that's profound, but I'm not quite sure what it means. So, 
Tim Keller was helpful when I read his comment on Psalm 103. He says this, Here is how to work the gospel into one's heart until it transforms. It happens through inward dialogue, speaking directly and forcefully to your heart, or as the Hebrews would say, your soul, rather than just listening to it. Biblical meditation, and if you remember Psalm 1, the righteous man meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Biblical meditation, unlike the popular varieties, is not a relaxation technique for emptying the mind, but rather one that fills it with truth, using thought and memory to set your heart on fire. So David tells himself, bless the Lord, David, bless the Lord over and over again in this psalm. And I need to wake up in the morning and go to bed at night saying, Josh, remember to bless the Lord. Remember to bless the Lord. I need to preach to myself, to my soul, to remember the Lord and his ways and his goodness, and to remember my response to that, to bless him. If you're a reader, there's a nice little short book here I'll recommend called Note to Self by a guy named Joe Thorne, who's a pastor down in Chicago. Really helpful little uh, examination and practice of this idea of preaching to yourself, and you might want to find that one. But there might be a question that, that we could be asking here, like, what does it mean to bless the Lord? I mean, that, that sounds... Somewhat odd. We sing it all the time, but what does it mean to bless the Lord? I mean, if you have an NIV Bible or any number of other translations, your Bible actually will say praise the Lord. They translate the Hebrew word barak into praise rather than bless, which is helpful, but the word means more than just praise. There's more to the word than what we think of with the word praise. Bless. Bless the Lord. Usually you think of someone who's in a more powerful position blessing or giving gifts to someone who's inferior or subordinate. And here, someone who is obviously inferior and subordinate, like grass and dust, is blessing Almighty God. Jim Hamilton in his commentary says, The word bless, when used in reference to blessing God and with certain grammatical things that he studies in his commentary, it means this. It means to adore with bended knee. To adore with blended, with, sorry, with bended knee. To adore with bended knee. Blessing is an acknowledgement of God's benefits, which are said, begin to be recited in verse 2 and 3. It's an acknowledgement of God's of the benefits of knowing God, and it's a reaction to the benefits of knowing God. And I love that word, benefits. There's a benefit to following the Lord. So David says, David, David's soul, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Everything that's within me, bless his holy name. Forget not his benefits. Forget not. I've preached on this idea a little bit before. I, I don't know if it was here or not, but why would David use this command to himself to forget, to not forget something? Don't forget this. Remember this, David. Well, we, we command others to remember something because we forget, right? I, I tell my kids to pick up some stuff because they forget. Um, I am told to pick up things because I am 
forgetful or maybe lazy, but somewhat forgetful certainly as well. We need to remember because we're prone to forgetfulness. Paul actually says to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, 2 chapter 8, remember Jesus Christ, which almost sounds insulting to say to somebody, hey, don't forget about Jesus. But David says a similar thing, forget not all the Lord's benefits. And then he gets into it. So what has God done? And here's where the beautiful poetry of this psalm kicks in with staccato-like rhythmic speed, starting in verse 3. Let me just read a few verses here. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? It's wonderful. Wonderful. These lines are just packed with great thoughts about God. He forgives us all our iniquity. And for David, this ran deep. If you know David's life, which we'll get into a lot this fall, you know that it was filled with some pretty significant sin adultery, maybe even arguably rape, murder. Not just a little white lie here and there, although there was seemingly plenty of that in David's life as well. He was not a perfect person. There was lots of sin, and the merciful God forgave all of it. Forgave all of it. Still consequences to sin, and if you read David's life, you see those consequences, but he knows that he's forgiven. His iniquity is forgiven. But that's not it. Who heals all your diseases? Now, be careful here. God does heal, but plenty of godly people do die from Horrible diseases. There's a temptation to make this figurative then. Well, because we still struggle with disease, maybe he's talking about spiritual sickness. and That's not what David meant here. He had seen God heal. He had seen God rescue. Um, but I think in this, in this idea, there's a sense of ultimacy here as well. God does heal. And David saw that grace in his life and in the life of others. God will also finally heal all things. There's a hope embedded in this passage, in this line, that doesn't just look back to past healing, but looks forward to ultimate healing. And I think that thought is true for all these lines. Yes, God does that and did that. He continues to forgive. He continues to heal. He continues to redeem. But God will do this even greater and more fully in the future. Verse 4. Who redeems your life from the pit? Nate preached on a passage using that pit imagery earlier. For many biblical characters, this was actually a literal situation. You know you know the story of Joseph, perhaps. Daniel was in a pit. Not just a pit, but a pit with some lions in there. Not a good situation. God redeemed his life from the pit. Gideon was hiding in kind of a pit, I guess, maybe, if you stretch it. Jonah, not literally was in a pit, but kind of in the, you know, the idea is there. Like, he's in this, this pit-like situation, and God redeems it. He redeems it. He, he makes it good. He brings them. He rescues them. He saves them. And David saw that salvation as he faced enemies and Goliath and Saul and all sorts of people who wanted to kill him. His life had been redeemed from the pit. It goes on. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. David the king sees God crowning him with something more than a royal position. God crowns him with steadfast love and mercy. 
It's just beautiful imagery there. And here's the answer to our, but is he good, question. The sovereign, reigning God of the universe, enthroned in heaven, puts a crown of love and mercy on sinful, diseased, entrapped people like David and like you and like me. He crowns his people with steadfast love and mercy. The first three lines of this section here set up a condition of really complete unworthiness. There's full of iniquity, disease-ridden, trapped in a pit. But then this fourth one shifts a little bit. It's not just a rescue situation. God now crowns his people. They're loved by a merciful God. But we're not done yet. Who satisfies you with good? I mean, that, I mean come on, this is, this is amazing, right? Like, he just, it just gets better and better as David stacks these lines on top of each other. God saves, but he doesn't just... Say, okay, don't screw up again now that I got you out of that mess. He welcomes us into his family. He gives us royal status, and he satisfies us with goodness. I love that word in this passage, satisfies, satisfied. It is a glorious word, and one that we all too seldom find ourselves in, isn't it? We're a very unsatisfied people. But the satisfaction of a job well done, the satisfaction of a wonderful feast that was eaten and now you're basking in the glow of that feeling. The satisfaction of being surrounded by loving, happily happy family. That's what David is getting at here. God satisfies him with good. With good. And the result then at the end of verse 5 is that so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David is reminding himself of all that God does for him There's this compounded effect of stacking these lines and evidences of God's grace on top of each other from rescue imagery, forgive, heal, redeem, to glorification imagery, crown and satisfies. And then there's almost this fountain of youth kind of result here. This is energizing. David, like the Red Bull thing, like commercial where it gives you wings, like that's where David's at. Like he's, he's ready to fly. He's ready to fly because he has thought about the grace and mercy of God and preached it to himself. The psalm doesn't end there. It goes on, verses 6 through 19, examine the character of God, what he does. He works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and Israel. Tells us about what God is like, his gracious activity, his mercy, his graciousness, his slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Abounding, overflowing in steadfast love. There's not just a limited amount of love that God can have towards people. It's abounding. There's no end to it. His anger won't keep. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Andrew's image was the last week of being caught by his belt on that truck has kind of stuck with me. I wish there was a picture. And uh, the father coming then and saying, let me get you down rather than laying into you. This compassionate God, steadfast love as high as the heavens above the earth. Transgressions are removed as far as east from west. He shows compassion to those who fear him like a father to his children. He knows He knows who you are. He knows our frame and knows that we are dust. In contrast, David makes this contrast now. What we're like is temporary. We're dust, we're grass, here and gone. But then he remembers what God is like again. God's steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. 
It is not temporary. It is permanent and eternal and unlimited. Righteousness extended through generations of covenant people, and God has established his throne and rules over all. So there's the heart of that chiasm. There's the meat there when David just goes through all this truth about God and truth about humanity, and the glory of God is evident as David recites this poem to himself and then ends by coming back to a prime, remember, calls others now, not just himself, he calls others, the heavenly host, angels, the works of God. He calls all things to bless the Lord. After reviewing and getting so excited about what God has done, who God is, David says, bless the Lord, everything, everything. And then ends the poem right where he started, bless the Lord, my soul, my soul. David, Josh, you have much to adore about God while on bended knee. There's, there's such rich doctrine in this poem. There's good theology in this poem, but it's set within these marvelous poetic languages and imagery. There's, there's this pit imagery for redemption that you saw um, earlier this week, I, or maybe it was last week, I, I kind of got on this Wikipedia rabbit hole. You know how that happens, where you just start clicking links and find yourself. It's actually called a wiki hole. I found that out, which is kind of cool. Um, anyway, I was on this on people trapped in caves, which was one of the most horrifying things I've ever read. Like, I, but I couldn't stop. You know how it goes. Like, you're just like, oh, that's awful. That is horrible. And I, I don't even like, I'm like, I've got sweaty palms and all that. It's like my nightmare is being trapped in the cave in the dark, all this kind of stuff. God redeems in a hopeless situation, in a hopeless situation. He uses this distance imagery for the removal of sins as far as east is from west. I used to think when I was a kid, like, okay, if I'm facing uh, north, east and west are not that far apart. So maybe like God distances our sin two feet from us. That doesn't, that's, not, that's not enough, is it? And I don't think that's a good spatial awareness of younger Josh on this one. I think just imagine a line stretching infinitely to the east and infinitely to the west where you will never reach where God put your sins in relationship to who, where you are at. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, it's not like right there. Like God, God removes them, but he's like hovering them over you. Uh, you bad. No, it's gone. It's gone. the father <clears throat> imagery for compassion here. This can be difficult for some of you, perhaps. Um, my, my dad was a wonderful, is, still, still is, <laughs> he didn't stop being wonderful, he's still alive. Uh, wonderful father, but he and I both tend to be um, more of like some rub some dirt on it kind of fathers than like uh, physically, emotionally compassionate people. I know that's maybe surprising if you know me, but uh, I did not always respond to my kids' tears with kind of this warmth and like comfort. Um, Marianne did. Certainly, I was more like, yeah, you'll be fine. Um, and I probably shouldn't have always done that. But so this imagery kind of like, why does David use father? Like for, in my mind, like my, my mom was always more compassionate or my wife is certainly more compassionate than I am. But think of the prodigal son's father who Jesus talks about. Prodigal son rejects the father wanders away, but then returns, and the father is waiting anxiously, patiently maybe. The father runs towards him. 
The father embraces him. The father kisses him, throws a feast for him, gives him gifts. Compassion of a father. Jesus illustrates with that parable of the prodigal son. And God has that kind of compassion towards his wayward children. Pit imagery, distance imagery, father imagery. There's also this dust and grass imagery for man's temporality. I found a couple pictures on the internet about dust and grass. Some of you will get that, others of you will not. It's strikingly easy for us to imagine this with the condition of our lawns right now. If your lawn is anything like mine these days, we came back from vacation and it looks very similar to what I saw in Jordan uh, a few weeks ago. Desolate, dry, dead. Uh, do not light a fire anywhere near my lawn right now because it'll be gone. Like the, what is there of grass will just burn right up. And that's the temporary nature of our lives as David illustrates with this grass imagery. By contrast, though, God's love is everlasting. From everlasting, again, those imaginary lines going infinitely in each direction from somewhere that we can't even possibly fathom down there to all over there, that's how much love God has for his people. There's no end to it, scope or duration. It covers everything. He is loving and good. And then finally, David kind of wraps up this section with this throne or kingdom imagery that I apparently pilled an image that has like watermarks on it. I didn't realize that at first. Um, for God's rule. God's sitting on the throne. He's in charge. Yes, he's good. He loves, he redeems, but he's, he's in charge. He's in charge. There's so much beauty in this poem. I hope you guys like get it. Like you, It takes a while to get it with poems. You have to dwell on those images and think through what does that represent. But as you do, it's just amazing. And this, this poem here, this psalm has maybe jumped into my top three, if not number one, psalm. They're all good, right? It's not like 150 is bad and one is good. But man, this one is amazing. Here's what Dennis Tucker and Jamie Grant say in their commentary. The worldview of the Psalms is formulated in the combination of two related concepts. The Lord reigns and his love endures forever. This combination of beliefs, the absolute sovereignty of God and his relational goodness is seen clearly in Psalm 103. This is why this psalm is so good to preach to our hearts. God is sovereign and in control, and God loves his children deeply and infinitely. What a beautiful fusion of concepts there. But think about it this way. If God was sovereign, if he wasn't on the throne, but he wasn't good or loving, what would the result of that be? He would be a harsh tyrant, not out, out perhaps purely for his own power. Not a good situation. If God was good and loving, but he was not sovereign, he was not powerful, he was not in charge, well, what would he be? He would, he would kind of be a nice, kindly old man, right? Kind, but, you know, if you really need help out of a pit, he can't do anything. He's not the guy that you're going to go to. He's going to say, oh, that's too bad. Uh, I, hope you get, I hope you get out. But he can't. He can't rescue. He can't save. But God is sovereign and God is loving. The two main themes of the Psalms, and Psalms 103 brings that together and says, therefore, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. We forget, verse 3, but God remembers. We forget the goodness and sovereignty of God, 
But he, in his graciousness, remembers his children. And God fully removes the sin of his people. So let's just let that one sink in for a bit here. What's the, what's the worst thing you did in your past? Turn to your neighbor. No, don't, don't do that. But, like, wait, I mean, you guys thought of something, and, and, and some of you are like, I just did turn to my neighbor, and now I think I need to call the police. Um, but there's, there's some pretty awful things in our past, isn't there? Some things that we bear guilt for. That guilt you bear, that sin you committed in Christ, it's fully forgiven. It's gone. Infinitely gone that way. Can't even see it. God has removed it from you. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. It has been separated from you as far as east from west. That sin in your past that you bear guilt about. Live in that freedom. What sin are you struggling with right now? Patience a little bit, maybe. Um, Maybe there's shame over some indwelling sin in your life that you're fighting and losing. It seems like a losing battle. In Christ, that sin is fully forgiven. So live in that freedom. Live in that freedom. Past sins, present sins, this one will be a little bit harder to answer, but tomorrow or next week, I hate to tell you, but you will sin. Um, hopefully you haven't mapped it out with a detailed plan of attack, but many of you will perhaps even sin before this sermon is done, and the severity of that sin is likely directly related to the ultimate length of this message. But somewhere, not too far down the line, you will yell at your kids in anger. You'll say a cruel word to your brother or sister or co-worker. You'll lose a battle to lust. You'll see your neighbor's boat and indulge your greed and bitterness for a while. You'll get angry on a Saturday morning because you failed to fully replace a garage door opener because you didn't read the instructions about needing to use an extension if your door is eight feet. Um, That one might be a past sin for somebody here in this room. But... Those sins that you will struggle with in your future in Christ are fully forgiven already. Past sin, present sin, future sin, all forgiven. All. I mean, this isn't really like an amening group, but I think that kind of should get one here, right? Past sins, present sins, and future sins in Christ, they are all forgiven. I mean, this deserves some shouting. Does this mean we can sin as much as we want? Well, by no means. Paul addresses that. How can we who died to sin still live in it? No. We joyfully pursue holiness. We seek to put our sins to death, but keep reminding ourselves that the sovereign God of the universe fully forgives sins as we put our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all. Psalm 103, then, as Tucker and Grant say, is not an abstract treatise on forgiveness. It is an invitation to remember God's all-encompassing fatherly forgiveness and to praise him, or we would say in our translation, bless him for it. My coworker Mike Evans, who's just a godly 70-year-old man that you just want to be around, told a story in a sermon I heard him give of a situation with his daughter. He didn't give the details, but his five-, six-year-old daughter, something like that, had done something wrong and was in the situation of he needed to discipline her. And she, with kind of her five, six-year-old manipulative mind, said, Daddy, um, I, need, I need grace here. I need grace. 
And Mike, being the good theologians that he is, said, well, no, you don't need grace. You actually need mercy because mercy is the withholding of uh, discipline or punishment, and grace is unmerited favor. So what you really need is mercy. And she's like, you know, whatever, can I have that? Like, I want some mercy then here on this one. And Mike said, I want you to know this, like this, the beauty of these two concepts, because they go together in Scripture and in our passage as well in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. And so Mike said, I'm going to withhold that punishment. I'm going to show you mercy. But I'm also going to show you grace. Let's go out for ice cream. So Mike took his little daughter out for ice cream. They found a little shop, and they're sitting there slurping on their cones. And his daughter looks up at him and says, Daddy, I love grace. <laughs> that's, that's amazing, isn't it? I love that story. Like, this is what the psalm should do. Like, David is telling himself, David, love the grace of the Lord. Bless the Lord. Adore the Lord because of his grace. And Psalm 103 gives us language and vocabulary for that very task. C.S. Lewis struggled with this, though. In, uh, in his little book, Reflections on the Psalms, there's a chapter called A Word About Praising. I want to close by just walking through some of this. Lewis, before he was a Christian, and for the first while after his conversion, struggled with some of the language of the Psalms. I mean, isn't it, isn't it kind of egotistical and maybe even narcissistic for God to command praise towards him? Listen, all you people, praise me. Um, we don't really like it when people say that. And, and Lewis said, the Psalms were hideously like saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. He, he couldn't get his mind out of that loop. But as Lewis studied and as he thought about it, and in all likelihood as he chatted about it with Tolkien and Williams and the gang at the Eagle and Child over a pint of bitter, he came to a different conclusion. And here's what he said. Admiration, praise, is the correct, adequate, or appropriate response to God that if paid, admiration will not be thrown away. And that if we do not admire, if we don't praise God, if we don't bless God, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We shall have missed something. Lewis goes on. He, God, is that object to admire which, or if you like to admire, appreciate which is simply to be awake. As you praise God, as you bless God, it awakens you to the truth of life. To have entered the real world and not to appreciate, which is to have lost the greatest experience and in the end, to have lost all. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. The world rings with praise. And he says this, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. And that line is a gem. Inner health, satisfaction in God made audible. I satisfy myself in the Lord. He 
gives me satisfaction in his goodness, and then I make it known to others. I praise him, I bless him, I sing to him. Almost done with Lewis here. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Listen to yourself when you talk about your favorite team. You're calling other people to join you in what you have found delight in. Or if you're a Lions fan, you don't do that like me. Lewis says this, praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him or bless him or praise him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. So let's preach this to ourselves and read it to our families. Let's practice it deeply. We need to marvel at the grace and mercy of God and call ourselves and call our church and call our community to bless the Lord. Forget not all his benefits. Let's pray. Father, we are people who praise and bless and glorify many things, but we often marvel at trivia, simple things. We endlessly scroll. That's nice, but it's not worthy of adore, adoration on bended knee. So would you draw our attention to your salvation, to your grace, to the satisfaction that can be found in you. And as we forget it, because we will, help us to preach to ourselves. Help us to talk biblical truth about God to ourselves. To bless his name. In his precious name we pray, amen.